the DMA Politics Podcast, now in visual form, as you can hopefully see. Um, we are recording live from Data 2020, which is our flagship conference here in uh, London's Euston. And I'm absolutely delighted to be sitting down with Professor Arnand Menon, uh, who is Director of UK in a Changing Europe Think Tank. Thank you very much for being here. Pleasure. Um, we are, well, Arnand hopefully is going to give us all a big briefing on a bit about what's to come in the Brexit negotiations, so we thought we'd talk a bit about that. Um, now, we're not quite in the negotiation stage with the EU and the UK yet. We've uh, we had the negotiation mandate released yesterday by the EU. Have you had a chance to look at it? Well, the EU was the day before, the UK was yesterday. Yeah. The UK government, of course, wouldn't call it a mandate because mm. that's a European word. Uh, one of the interesting things about the UK position is how much of it has been written not to be the European position. Right. So the language is different, the terminology is different. I mean, this government has an eye to style as well as substance. And, yeah. uh, on the substance, looking at the two positions, there is a deal to be done if both sides are willing to be flexible, and we don't know. Right, and that flexibility seems, well, if, if you take the sort of um, posturing position, particularly from the UK side, you might say that seems unlikely that they will engage in this very sort of constructive negotiating um, sort of debate and then you know come to an agreement it sort of seems very um, what's the word um, they're facing off with each other just now do you think that's just a posturing thing no I don't I think that there's real politics here in the UK I think you know this is a government that has decided that politics is more important than economics for its political survival mm. and that control is more important than cooperation if there's a trade-off mm. on the EU side the EU never negotiates I mean this is one of the things about the European Union any any country that has had the unpleasant experience of trying to talk trade with the European Union will know but what the European Union does is it goes away the member states will come up with a mandate after a lot of bickering the EU will put the mandate on the table and say that's it because let's face it if you ask us to change that we've mm. got to go back to those 27 and it's a nightmare so you have two stubborn negotiating partners okay which doesn't bode well so the question is and this is the thing I don't know the answer to how badly they want to avoid a breakdown mm. a breakdown will be damaging not just economically but I think in terms of political and security relations so there's a lot to be lost but the what we don't know as yet, because these, these negotiations take on a dynamic of their own, is whether or not common sense will prevail on both right. sides, leading to a satisfactory outcome. And what would you say are the top three, or maybe just the biggest thing that business needs to watch out for during the negotiations? I mean, there's obviously there's a, a plethora of any any number of things, but depending on your industry, but as a, to the economy as a whole and to businesses uh, uh, in general, what, what would be the big things that they need to be looking out for? Well, if you want a clue as to where we're going, you need to be interested in fish, because bizarrely enough, the fisheries industry might derail the whole thing. I think it's true to say that Harrods, the department store, contributes more to the British economy than the fishing industry. Really? Uh, so this isn't an economic thing, this is purely political. Yeah. Uh, but it has become kind of totemical. And, and we're not the only ones who are being economically irrational. The same is true for the French. The idea that the French will go to the wall on their relationship with us over fish is silly mm. unless you factor in politics. Right. If no deal is done on fish, there will be no deal. Uh, the other thing, I think particularly you know, as we're here today and you're thinking about things like data is whether or not there is any room for compromise over the rule of the European Court of Justice. Uh, when it comes to things like data protection, data sharing, the European Union has, as we all know from the scarring experience of GDPR, uh, very tight rules on data privacy. That, those rules are 
enforced by the EU's own courts. The British government's position is the EU's court will have no jurisdiction over us. How then do you satisfactorily arrive at a situation where we can share data, whether it's business data or air traffic data or security data? Remember, if we leave without a deal, we lose access to all the security databases. Is there a way we can compromise that we can say we've preserved our legal authority from the EU system and they can be convinced that we are going to be reliable partners when it comes to data prevention? Can you see, are there any parallels around the world where that kind of relationship works, or is this entirely new territory? Uh, this is one of the really interesting things about Brexit. If you read the government's uh, negotiating position, I keep wanting to say mandate, but you yeah. shouldn't. So, from, uh, <laughs> I've set you off on From that. yesterday, uh, the whole thing basically, the, the basis of the British government's argument is, we're just another country like any other. You did this for Canada, you did this for Japan, you did this for South Korea. Why can't you do it for us? Okay. Now, the EU's position is, ah, oh, but you're not just any country. Mm. Because unlike Canada, you're a massive economy and you're next door. And you trade with us loads. So actually, we need special protections uh, from you. And that's one of the problems, is yeah. the EU is saying you can't just have a deal like any other country has a deal. So in many ways, this deal is unique. It's unique. I mean, let me think of three ways in which it's unique. One, because the EU won't treat us like any other country. Okay. Okay. Two, because uh, we're starting from a very, very closely integrated situation. Uh, and actually, this is the first trade negotiation in history whose sole purpose is to make trade harder, which right. makes it unique yes. and yeah, makes yeah, it quite yeah. tricky as a political uh, sell. Uh, but thirdly, because it goes way beyond trade. You know, as I said before, this is about police cooperation, military mm. cooperation, all sorts of other things. It's about yeah. aviation, it's about road haulage. It's not just about markets. Uh, it goes, it, so the scope is huge. And add to that the fact that because there's this timetable, the British government says it wants to see loads of progress by June. It's a tough ask. Yeah, they, I think yesterday or the day before they said that the, the business consultation stage will take place in spring, which is kind of curious given that we'll know relatively few details by yeah, then. and you know we await with interest what business consultation means because one of the most striking things to happen to British politics post-referendum, I think, is the way business no longer has the ear of government in the way it always assumed that it would. Yeah. You know, maybe this is this is an overdue correction. Maybe business had too much influence over government in the past, and that the city was listened to too much, yeah. and the rest of the country was ignored. I mean, that's certainly the argument around rebalancing. But they've compensated way the other way. If you talk to businesses now about the frustrations of just not being listened to yeah. on Brexit, yeah. it is quite striking that both under Mrs May and equally under Mr Johnson now, the concerns of business aren't driving this process. Yeah. As I said right at the start, this is about politics and to the degree to which, and I think to a significant degree, Brexit is about a trade-off mm -hmm. between politics and economics. Yeah. Politics is winning. Absolutely. And that's, it's quite interesting. I sit on two of the, well, as well as lobbying for the DMA, I sit on two of the CBI's policy councils as well. And it's really interesting, everyone coming around these tables, talking about how else we can actually influence the government programme now. Because it, it, you're right, it has the relationship has changed. It's not just, you can't just walk into Downing Street and have the year of the Chancellor or the, uh, or the Prime Minister. It's really, you've got to almost be approached now, which is quite fundamentally different. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Um, I have here um, your report, which I will happily plug for you. This is um, by Anand's Think Tank, UK in a Changing Europe, and it covers all the things that we've been talking about and much more, and is definitely worth a read if you are um, at all inclined. Um, while I've got you here, though, mm -hmm. uh, I want to get a couple of um, 
points on uh, your, your kind of general view of the political sphere at the moment. Um, yeah. Of course, we have the Labour leadership uh, competition at the moment, or um, uh, contest. Who do you think is going to get it? Looks like Keir Starmer is going to win. It seems to me at the moment the big question is whether he gets it on first preferences or whether they have to go down to second preferences. Mm. I think, you know, from the perspective of the Labour Party, I suspect that having a leader with the clearest possible mandate is probably better than a close-run thing. So for Keir Starmer, it matters, I think. Yeah. If he can get in on first preferences, it gives him a far firmer base. Uh, what we don't know, I mean, we can never be certain, but let's assume Keir Starmer wins. What we don't know is how strong a leader he will be. Mm. You know, there's a lot of pressure on him from the moderate wing of the, the parliamentary Labour Party to come in and basically clean out the stables. Yeah. Because the Corbynites have taken over the central machinery of government. This is the big difference with the 1980s when Neil Kinnock became party leader. When Neil became party leader, actually, the sort of the mechanisms of the party hadn't been taken over by militants. So he had a far easier job, in a way, rewriting the programme and all okay. that sort of thing than a new leader is going to have now because momentum have taken over those key party roles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the Secretary-General, Jenny Formby, has been quite busy putting people in key positions. And what we don't know is how willing Keir Starmer is to have a fight, whether he wants that fight at yeah. all, whether he's going to try and be consensual, which will be hard because the one thing lacking amongst the different factions of the Labour Party is any sense of consensus at all. Mm. And as, as, are you surprised that he has managed to kind of manoeuvre this... Um, of taking over a system given that he is the more moderate candidate. Do you not, is, it, is it interesting that um, he's been able to relatively easily um, come out ahead of the pack given the, you know, as you say, the, um, the more uh, extreme of the Labour Party have taken over the whole process? Well, I'd say several things. Firstly, Rebecca Long-Bailey has run a lacklustre campaign. Mm. Secondly, Keir Starmer's gone out of his way not to appear like a centrist. Mm. Some of his language has been, you know, quite striking when he's talked about, you know, the need to reform the system, and I've always been quite radical. Yeah. Uh, no one knows whether that's true or not. Uh, the third thing I'd say is that the, the Starmer campaign has been a copybook campaign. If you if you did a focus group of all Labour members on what they thought about everything, mm. the answers to that those focus groups would lead to the the, the Starmer campaign. He's played that beautifully okay. in terms of the electorate he's going after. The big thing we don't know now, because of course there's a massive difference between Labour members and the population of the United Kingdom, okay? Absolutely. To what extent he is capable of pivoting from that electorate to the one that really counts, which involves changing several positions yeah. to become electable to the bigger electorate, that's the big question for the Labour Party. Interesting. One final question. Are you aware there is a Twitter account that is solely dedicated to announcing whether you are on TV or not? Sadly, yes. How <laughs> does it feel uh, to I be part of this, you know, uh, almost uh, cultural phenomenon in, in the political world? Well, I suppose uh, the best I can say is if I'm turning into a sort of baby John Curtis, then uh, that's no bad thing. Exactly, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Professor Arnold Menon. Um, we look forward to hearing you speak later on, and uh, it's you. been an absolute pleasure. Cheers.